Hello, and welcome to the Star Trek Academy, a podcast about the latest new episodes of Star Trek. And today we're looking at season one, episode 10 of Star Trek Prodigy, entitled A Moral Star Part Two. Your hosts are two of the Academy faculty members. I'm Rodney Cup, the philosophy professor. And I'm Michael Merrick, the media professor. You can find our announcements about new episodes and other things by following us on Twitter at Trek underscore Academy. You'll find us on a lot of podcast sites, but we recommend the easiest is to go to anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy and find the subscribe links there. And Rodney, going to start with a spoiler here, which we'll talk about in the summary in a moment, but we kind of called it. We've been talking for two or three weeks about suspecting that the diviner has a plan to save his species. And yeah. that's what we find out in this episode. You know, I don't read that many online articles about Prodigy, so I don't know if that's something that was obvious to everybody or if we kind of saw something that uh, others didn't. But they did plant quite a few hints along the way. Yeah, and I don't read uh, other online articles about Prodigy either. Maybe we should. I'm not sure. So I can't say. Well, we don't want to be a carbon copy of them. We don't want to clone them. I, I'm more interested in seeing what you and I see and talking about that. Yeah, and I, I think we're contributing something uh, worthwhile to the conversation, if not even novel. We hope so. We hope so. All right. Well, before we start our discussion of this episode, we're going to give you a brief plot outline that contains spoilers, but this is not a blow-by-blow account, so there's still going to be some elements that will be new to you if you watch the episode after the fact. At least um, if you're listening to this sometime in the future, this will refresh your memory. So that's nice. So with our summary, here's Professor Michael Merrick. And thank you. Hologram Janeway, who appears to have been rebooted as a dark Janeway, informs the Diviner that the Protostar engine is not on board. Gwyn and the Diviner are in conflict here. The USS Protostar returns to Tars Lamora, where our heroes are busy getting the Rev-12 ready to launch. When the Diviner arrives, Dreadnought beams down, but many of the unwanted fight back against him, led by the Cation captive that we've mentioned uh, several times. The unwanted can communicate because Dal and Zero reprogrammed their electronic manacles into universal translators. But while they're fighting, the Diviner beams up the protocore out of Murph. Remember, Murph had it inside him. To rescue Gwyn, the Rev-12 takes off in pursuit of the protostar. The Diviner discovers that Gwyn is reprogramming the ship. And here's a big reveal. Hologram Janeway has been faking being an evil twin, and she's loyal to Starfleet back in her red uniform. Janeway grabs something off Diviner's uniform, and he starts, I think it's bleeding, or at least something is leaking, something blue is leaking leaking out. In a weakened state, he finally tells Gwyn about his mission. Fifty years in the future, their world, Solom, is a wasteland because of a civil war resulting from a Starfleet first contact. He has come back in time to prevent that first contact using a signal, which kind of sounds like maybe it's a virus, a computer virus or something like that. 
but the signal will upload to other Starfleet ships, turning all of them against each other. So Starfleet will tear itself apart according to his plan. Gwyn is not impressed with this plan. Rev-12 catches up with Protostar, which has shields up, but the teens figure out a way to beam one person through at a time. Dal goes first and confronts the Diviner, but it is Zero who actually overcomes the Diviner by revealing his unprotected self, which drives the Diviner crazy. That's what happens when people look at the unprotected Medusan. They leave the Diviner behind on Tars Lamora, and the Protostar sets course to seek out Starfleet. The Unwanted, including the Cation, stay on the Rev-12. It's now their ship. And a narration by Hologram Janeway praises the teenagers, calling them each prodigies in the making. And that is the end of the episode. Oh, wait, there is one more scene. The real Admiral Janeway on the USS Dauntless, NCC-80816, detects the third protostar signature from the protostar drive. Remember, this is the third time they've used it. It's way far away. She charges off at maximum warp to rescue Chakotay. And now we wait for possibly as much as a year to have more episodes. So now that is the end. Okay, hopefully not that long. Um, I was enjoying this, but in a bit, we'll talk about the philosophy and themes and morals that we think we found in this episode, but there are some individual elements we'd like to uh, discuss before we get there. Uh, What have you got, Michael? We finally get the big reveal of the mission of the diviner, Uh, but (laughs) there are unanswered questions and our understanding now opens other questions. So the diviner traveled in time, but apparently so did the protostar. So the diviner could attack it something like 17 years ago. And we don't know why the protostar traveled in time. We also don't know what happened to Chakotay and the original crew. Yeah, that's a big mystery. I wonder where the heck uh, Chakotay is. I think it was confirmed in this episode, Michael, that the protostar really was inside Murph. Yeah. I mean, yeah, when the they... diviner decided to return to Tars Lamora because he didn't have his <laughs> proto drive working, he says that he has a star to catch. Yeah, and I think you know, that is a clear reference to the proto-star core. They keep calling it different things. but yeah. And I'll uh, let it go, but it's very unbelievable. <laughs> I, I still enjoyed the episode. So I always notice when we see landscapes in Star Trek that seem to be inspired by Vasquez Rock. And mm-hmm. I, I kind of saw that in the Solom landscape. Some of it is apparently not rock formations, but jagged remnants of buildings or things like that. But you always see those pointy things sticking up in an, at an angle uh, in Star Trek, it seems like, often. When Rev-12 catches up with Protostar, Dal doesn't have a plan, but he runs to rescue Gwyn anyway. Yeah. Uh, he's brave, but I have to say, as is typical for what he has himself called his half-baked plans, this one doesn't work out that great except that it stalls the diviner for a bit until zero arrives and really is the one who defeats the diviner. That's right. Dow will get better. He'll have better plans in the future, I think. Hey, last time we were talking about the Janeway hologram and we were noticing that it was different than other holograms we've seen in past Star Trek, say on the holodeck on uh, 1701D. Well, this time 
thanks to upgrades, hologram Janeway is solid. <laughs> and she handles the diviner while Gwen tries to lower the protostar's shields. Yeah, and I, I was wondering about that, but uh, you're right. It's the upgrades. And they said Gwen had upgraded the Janeway hologram, uh, apparently in preparation for this deception. So what would have usually blanked the hologram and started fresh just didn't work because of Gwen's upgrades. Mm-hmm. After this episode, we can't avoid really talking about the relationship between Dal and Gwen. If the previous episodes haven't already started this talk, I think that this one is sure to stimulate some shipping. You know what shipping is, Rodney? Shipping. No, I don't. Shipping. Now, the first time I heard the term was with respect to the X-Files, and it referred to fans who wanted Mulder and Scully to be in a romantic relationship, which is where ship comes from. Oh. So we had the phrases, I'm shipping them. I'm a Mulder and Scully shipper. Okay. Okay. I get it. Of course, you hear the term with respect to a lot of other series now and maybe some other settings that aren't even TV, but this is not an accident. It is a deliberate result of a story element, a story writing element called UST or unresolved sexual tension. It refers to a story arc element that we've seen. We've seen this again and again and again on TV and other places. Two characters who are attracted to each other, but at least in most cases, they never say it. In the past on TV, the lead characters sometimes would get together after several seasons of shipping, and that often just killed the series. There was an American series called Moonlighting. You remember Moonlighting? I remember. It was really quite popular, but once the male and the female lead characters got together, it went downhill fast and didn't take long before it was canceled. There are fans who say that the X-Files went downhill after Mulder and Scully got together, had a kid together, but we've seen UST lots of other places. And here are just some examples. Have you read the original Sherlock Holmes stories? No, no, um, Sherlock Holmes and Irene Adler, his one overwhelming female nemesis but you could see the connection between them. In the golden age of radio, have you heard of The Shadow? I have. Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? The Shadow knows. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Lamar Cranston was The Shadow, and Margot Lane was his constant companion. Now, in the 1940s or so, you could only hint at things on radio at that time, but... Yeah, Superman and Lois. In the early 1960s, I can't keep track of everything the X-Men have gone through, but in the (laughs) earliest 1960s X-Men comics, Scott Summers and Jean Grey were both in love with each other, but never told each other. Hmm. In fact, this will amaze some people. In the first issue or so, Professor X was also secretly in love with Jean Grey. Really? Yeah. The writers dropped that plot thread pretty quick, like a hot potato, because, you know, teachers and students, and it wasn't appropriate. So, um, I mean, how many companions has Doctor Who fallen in love with and not told, at least in the the recent incarnation of Doctor Who? And just to name a a more recent example, uh, my family has been watching reruns of Psych, the USA Network series, and and that the UST was there, you know, Will, Sean, Spencer, and 
and uh, Jules O'Hara get together, and they finally do. Um, but yeah. you see this everywhere. Yeah, I've recently, but I've recently been watching a series. It's like for fifteen years ago, um, a British series, Primeval, and Abby and Connor. You know, another just perfect example of it. It's not a coincidence. It's a tool that writers yeah. often use, and we've seen hints in past Prodigy episodes, but. It's more and more overt this time, including Dal putting his arm around Gwyn in a scene near the end of the episode. And so we'll see how far the writers go for their teenage audience. You know, I will say this for the writers, this closeness that they've developed, it seems completely natural. I feel like since almost the beginning of the series, you've sensed that they have a kind of affection for each other, even when they were at odds with each other. Mm-hmm. Did you feel that way also, Michael? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, the very apparently the very first time they met, Dal was in jail, but somehow they were communicating, unlike most of the other people's ability to communicate. And so maybe that was kind of what what started uh, the connection between them. But yeah, we've, we've you know, in in very subtle hints about things, we've we've seen it developing through through the ten episodes. Yeah. So nice job, writers. Speaking of the title of this series, and you mentioned this uh, in in the summary, we have been wondering about it. We had a discussion about it uh, one or two podcasts ago. But at the end of this episode, the hologram Janeway in her log entry says that each of the kids aboard the protostar prodigies in the making, and a prodigy defined as a young person with exceptional qualities or abilities. Perfect example, I say, is Rock, who taught herself almost everything she needed to know to save the protostar a few episodes back. So I guess that's um, the explicit meaning of the, yeah. mm-hmm. of the title. Anyway, and also another thing I wanted to say about the end of this episode, we're introduced to this uh, USS Dauntless, previously unseen kind of Starfleet vessel, I think, right? Yeah. Vice Admiral Janeway's commanding it. There's no question when you look at it, that it's a Starfleet vessel, but it's mm-hmm. weird looking. Well, um, among other things, it has kind of like the Protostar, it has not a saucer, but a kind of a triangular structure for the upper the upper. Almost hall. like it's, a cone, like a flattened it's not, cone. Yeah, it's not shaped exactly the same, but uh, yeah. yeah, but it has the, the lower engineering body and the nacelles. We can assume it will make uh, an extensive appearance in the next season. Uh, either that or Janeway will never find them, but... That's what we'll wait a few months to find out. Okay. I don't see that happening. But um, it's time now we can talk about some underlying meanings here of the episode. Do you want to get us started, Michael? Yeah. And I have to be honest, to me, this episode is not heavy on philosophy or multiple lessons to be learned. It is the the episode is more about answering questions and wrapping up a storyline, basically. I agree. But it has one very solid message where when Gwyn finally learns what the plan is to destroy Starfleet and mm-hmm. uh, and that she tells her father that they need to talk to Starfleet, not destroy them, not trade one tragedy for another. And I think that's a pretty fundamental philosophical message, one that resonates with a lot of past Star Trek. And that's also um, a good message for our times where people seem to get angry with each other almost on a whim. On a whim, and but won't talk. Yeah. <laughs> but demonize each other. And it just struck me, Michael, as you were talking, 
you know, this is similar to the discovery storyline that we're in the middle of right now. You know, they had that debate, uh, you know, do we destroy the uh, DMA or do we seek out species 10C and talk to them? Mm-hmm. Right? Exactly. It just, yeah. It just hit yeah. Me. It's a very similar philosophical point. And, and like I said, it, it resonates with other Star Trek. Errand of Mercy in the original Star Trek, where the Klingons and the Federation, Starfleet are getting into fight. And all of a sudden, they're stuck with having to talk to each other and find <laughs> out that they have a lot of commonalities. So Heaven forbid. Yeah. <laughs> we should talk to each other. Anyway, no, that's a, that's a great message. I found maybe a few other messages in this, in this episode. I, and I can't remember if we've had indications of this in previous episodes, I believe we have, but it's very explicit here. The the diviner is a speciesist. Now, what do I mean by that? Speciesism is kind of like racism. Now in racism, you show a preference for your own race, even though you have no morally sound reason for doing so. And the diviner treats his own species as superior to all others. He says that before the first contact with the Federation, that his people were confident in their superiority. And then later on, he chastises Gwen for helping her friends, which he calls inferior people. And he's, he's criticizing her for helping these inferior people, so-called before her own people. And this speciesism of his might explain his attempt to kill the miners in the previous episode that really irked me. So We've got that juxtaposed with Janeway holograms proudly stating that her crew has learned that they're stronger together. And now this is a crew of very different people from different species. So if there might be another big message in this, which is that, you know, we can't allow things like racism and similar prejudices to tear us apart. We have to celebrate our differences and work together, which again is a very Star Trek kind of uh, moral, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and and what you're saying really overlaps with what I said. You know, stronger together, talk to each other, find commonalities. Yeah. You know, in in a way, very different directions. But you and I kind of came at the same philosophical point from different directions. Yeah, I think so. And I also wanted to say something about that Cation that I was hoping would join the crew. And, and maybe she will, I, I'm holding out hope. But anyway, she tells Dreadnought in that one scene, she says, we now have a voice, right? And I wouldn't be surprised if maybe this is some kind of reference to maybe marginalized and oppressed peoples in our history, you know, who have struggled to gain power and representation in society and to find or have their voice and to be seen even, right? Yeah, seen and seen heard. It is common language we hear today with respect to people who feel they are not well treated by society. Well, shall we talk about our kind of final thoughts and conclusions? Go ahead. Let's let's do it. This episode is a kind of a rare example in Star Trek mm-hmm. uh, where we've had two different groups of time travelers rendezvousing with each other in their respective time travel destinations. Now in Discovery, fairly recently, we had Michael Burnham and her mom meeting in the future. Right. Uh, okay. In Enterprise, we had the crew chasing the Zindi in modern day Detroit. 
And of course, we had Janeway herself and her crew members encountering the wacko Captain Braxton in 1996. Right. No others are coming to mind, but it isn't too often that we've we've seen this two different groups of time travelers or individuals meeting after both of them have time traveled somewhere. Hmm. I have to say that I, I often find the alternative timelines that that result from time travel stories interesting. And obviously, well, I shouldn't say obviously, but apparently that's what we're going to see in Picard starting in three weeks or so. Oh, right. um, but time travel can also be a storytelling problem because it works differently in different episodes. Every time, even in, in Star Trek, which is usually consistent about a lot of stuff, mm -hmm. sometimes you change the past. Sometimes you branch off an alternate timeline. It isn't consistent in Star Trek. And yeah, I mean, the previews have me looking forward to Picard, but after that, I'm kind of hoping that Star Trek will let time travel rest for a few years. Yeah, we've been doing an awful lot of time travel lately. That's right, here in Prodigy, Picard. Discovery, uh, Discovery. yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe Lower Decks will jump on the bandwagon at some point. I hope not. Uh, I, I, like I said, it, it's we can take a rest now, I think. <laughs> you know, Rodney, you and I have been saying for the last few weeks in our podcast that today's episode would be the end of season one of Prodigy. But it's but still, it? well, yeah, it's not really clear what Paramount has in mind. At first, they said they were adding more episodes, essentially doubling the length of the first season. But then there was talk that did divide it into season one and season two. And now, well, yes, I did look at a few online articles about, about Prodigy. And now there are online comments that are talking about this week's episode as a mid-season finale even though it'll be months off before they pick it up again. So, I mean, regardless of whenever the next Prodigy episodes after this week are, the end of this episode felt like the end of a season. And it felt it like we were getting a post-credits scene. It wasn't technically after the credits. It was before the credits. But mm -hmm. it felt like, you know, the kind of Marvel post-credits scene or something like that, which looks forward and kind of builds some anticipation to episodes that, that are months down the road. Yeah. I think that this episode, the entire season and this episode was written assuming that this would be the end of the season. But partway through production, they got the order for more episodes. So essentially, they tacked on that final scene with Admiral Janeway. It was less than a minute. So it's, you know, they could have trimmed scenes in some other places to give them the minute they needed for it. It's not exactly a cliffhanger, but it is kind of a cliffhanger. It certainly builds anticipation as to what's coming next. But like I said, with new episodes months off at the least, uh, it doesn't really feel like a mid-season pause. No, it doesn't. It felt just like a, the end of a season. And if I could interject here, there's some tension building because only Gwyn and the Diviner know about the Starfleet killing weapon aboard the Protostar. And since Gwyn's memory has been wiped, I think it's still aboard. And does she know? Is that part of what was wiped? Her, her memory of, of what the Diviner told her about the mission and things. Well, I assume so. That's my feeling about it. And so I'm worried about this. You know, when they encounter the Dauntless, this thing could be activated. So I'm wondering, you know, next, I want to say next season, saving Starfleet from this weapon might be a story arc. Could be. For the next could 10 be. episodes. Yeah. 
I wanted to ask you, Rodney, what did you think about leaving the now crazy diviner behind on Tars Lamora and leaving the rest of the unwanted on Red 12 to kind of try to figure out how it works on their own? What did you think of that? It, it seemed to me like an abrupt ending to this season. Yeah, it, it was I mean, a convenient way to apparently write them out of the series right, uh, right. in both cases, but um, it, it did seem kind of, like you said, abrupt or pretty casual, a casual dismissal. That that one little detail, it was just a quick mention in the closing narration, but that didn't work for me too well. It's kind of the way they ended uh, season three of Discovery. They really wrapped that up quickly, too quickly, I think. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, and um, I guess they did leave the diviner behind. I I wonder, though, if he, I mean, it's possible, you know, he could make another appearance. He could be rescued from Tars Lamora and and turn up in future episodes. But it it seemed to me that they, it it felt like they really wrapped this up quickly and and moved on. And I'm, by the way, if I could just note, I'm not sure that leaving him on Tars Lamora was an acceptable punishment i mean is this something that starfleet would approve of or do i mean i i don't really feel bad for him (laughs) you know given his speciesism and the enslaving and the mass murder attempt and all that but it it doesn't seem like a humane punishment to me i mean he's crazy does he have food and water available to him i don't think we saw dreadnought did they put dreadnought back together to take care of him i don't know uh and Gwen was marginally exposed by seeing a zero in a reflection, and she mm-hmm. gets better over time. Spock saw a Medusan in the original series and, yeah, messed him up pretty well, but yep. his mental discipline allowed him to recover from that. So uh, we'll see if it's, if it's a permanent absence from the storyline for the Diviner or not. And Rodney, I'm still trying to work out, we talked about this last week, work out the meaning of the title of this two-part episode, A Moral Star. And it seems to me from this episode that, yeah, yes, it is pretty clear that star is a reference to the protostar core. Morality is defined as the determination of right and wrong based on ethical principles And so moral refers to a positive judgment about something. And Gwen and the others certainly make um, a moral judgment, a positive moral judgment. But a a thing like the protocore can't be moral or immoral. It's how it's used that would be moral or immoral. Is that what the title is talking about? It's still not quite clicking for me. The star used for positive rather than negative purposes. I don't know. You know, I wish I had thought about this a little bit more, but I, I still think I'm at this point, I'm still happy with uh, <laughs> uh, the interpretation I settled on at the end of our last podcast that, um, you know, we've got a crew now here that is kind of following a, a moral star. The navigational reference you're talking That's about right. last time. I mean, yeah. They, okay. They risked it all to uh-huh. save the miners, um, to save Gwyn. They're no longer the you know, atomistic, self-interested people that they were. They're functioning much more like a crew now with a purpose, you know? And at such time as they arrive at Starfleet, it will be interesting to see how that goes, since on the one hand, they essentially stole the ship, but on the other hand, they are bringing it back in relatively good shape. And Hologram Janeway, at least, will be able to be an advocate for them. 
So uh, if they get back to Starfleet or if they just encounter the Dauntless somewhere out in the middle of nowhere, it'll be interesting to see how that goes with the two Janeways talking to each other, maybe. <laughs> That'll be fun. They've set up season two nicely. I, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what Or, what or season 1.5 or the rest right. of season one or whatever it ends up being. Yes. Okay. I think that just about does it for this podcast. As always, we'd like to thank you for joining us next time. Star Trek Discovery is returning for the final six episodes of this season. Now, the last three episodes are going to overlap with the new season of Star Trek Picard. So it's we're entering a busy time for Star Trek fans. We'd like you to keep track of our new episodes and other announcements on our Twitter feed, at Trek underscore Academy. Or you can subscribe directly at anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you again next time.